God, thanks for uh, your word. Thank you for these people, and I pray that you would bless them and and reveal to us uh, as we're entering a new year and uh, what you would want us to do uh, in in our community in our church. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're gonna take a, a couple or a few weeks to study the book of Habakkuk, and uh, some people say Habakkuk or Habakkuk or Habakkuk or whatever. Tomato, tomato, you know, potato, whatever. Habakkuk is how I learned it in uh, a minor prophets class that I took in college. So Habakkuk or Habakkuk or whatever. Um, But if you ever come across a a biblical name that you're just not quite sure how to pronounce it, like all those names in Matthew chapter 1, just just read it with authority and conviction and without hesitation. And no one's going to second guess how you said it. You know, just, just do it. So now that you have that hint... Uh, go on and pronounce things. Um, but there isn't any character development with Habakkuk. And it just kind of just starts right in there. And he's, he's a prophet named Habakkuk. And that's basically all we get. We don't get this background about his wife, Lois, or his three kids, you know, Chris, Meg, and Stewie. We don't hear about his dog, Brian. You know, it's none of that stuff. And there's no human interest story. Um, it, it doesn't talk about him being a family guy or anything. But it but it's not who Habakkuk is that matters anyway. It's more about uh, what, what he brings to the table, what he's going to talk to us about here. And you'll notice that Habakkuk is different from other prophets uh, in that he, he's, uh, he's a prophet that, that doesn't speak for God. He, he, he doesn't speak for God to the people. He, he's the prophet that he uh, speaks to God about the people. And so it's a little different than what we have from other prophets. And it doesn't mean that Habakkuk never spoke a word from God to the people, because he most likely did as a prophet. But what this book is more about is, is Habakkuk speaking about the people to God. And some of you may be wondering why we're, we're taking this break from 1 Samuel, and uh, you know we were just in that, and we were going to get into the life of David. and you know, um, But it was a good stopping point. And, and also the reason uh, for looking at this book in the next few weeks is... Um, because of some recent occurrences that have happened in our neighborhood and in our immediate community. And in recent weeks, there, there's been an increase in, in crime, uh, in violent crime, uh, right, in, right in our neighborhood. And much of this, um, I'm going to let Dave Kim talk about next week, uh, because he was um, held up at gunpoint right across the street. And, um, it, and it's just one of many occurrences that have been happening around our neighborhood um, but, but he was a victim of that. And, and God has been showing him some pretty awesome things uh, about that and having him go through like an anger thing and going through like, uh, what do we do? Are we going to raise up more defenses or, or are we going to be worried about the human heart and how we're going to transform that and transform people's hearts and something more to that end? Or, or are we just going to be focused on increasing lighting and, and patrolling and, and you know putting up uh, more alarms or whatever? And so Dave will share about that kind of stuff. But um, Habakkuk was then impressed upon me after Dave shared his story about what happened with him and uh, what was going on around here as I, as I hear other things from other people in the neighborhood. And, and I think God has some things to say to us through this book about how to approach this. And it's not a study to point out who's right or who's wrong or to, to get some agenda across um, but it's simply to simply let the Bible tell us what it intends to tell us. And what Habakkuk tells us is that he was puzzled 
about God because of what was happening around him. He didn't understand what was happening around him. And it's much like those of us who live, work, and worship right around this neighborhood. And we wonder, what in the world is God doing? Or what in the world is God not doing around here? Like, why all this stuff? Why all this stuff happening here? So we're going to use this book because it's going to address some things that some of us are thinking about now. And if not now, that we will think about in some point in our life. And Things such as the problems that, that we raise to God, but, but what happens with those things that we bring to God? And Habakkuk will address our faith and how we are to be people who live by faith. And this book of the Bible will address the justice that, that we're waiting for, that we're longing for. And it'll direct us to the prayers that we are to pray. And finally, it'll, it'll tell us about the times that we face. And not everything that I just mentioned will be covered in one study, but we're going to break it up into about four to five studies and and talk about all those things through this book. But let's first talk about the problems that we bring to God. Because that's that's what's addressed in chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. And if we're honest with ourselves, we we often find ourselves just puzzled by God, just perplexed by God, and sometimes find that God's answers actually raise more problems. And they actually raise more questions for our faith rather than solidifying it. So let's just start with verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So here we see the silence of God and and human violence. And What's Habakkuk concerned about here? What is he concerned about? It was that there there was violence without any justice in Judah. Habakkuk is talking about the wickedness, the violence, the injustice in his nation of Judah, the the southern kingdom of Israel in 7th century B.C., all the perverseness, the strife, the contention around his culture, around the society. And this was concerning the prophet. And these are the people who who have God's covenant, God's promises, and, and it's a dangerous place for them to live. And it's like where we are in Oakland. You know, a lot of us feel called here. we called to serve the community. And, and why is it so dangerous? You know, we thought that we would be a light and we would be salt to this community and we'd make things better. But why is it seeming to not have an effect? And, and you know, the little people are getting taken advantage of. Um, I, I, I heard a story from a friend of mine that, you know, there was this elderly, elderly man who uh, walked around and uh, he, he carried his life savings on him as, on a money belt. And so he was one of the victims of this mugging, and they took his life savings. They took everything. And then when this group of people saw this guy again, they went to approach him again to see if he had anything on him, and he had $1,000 on him at that time. They robbed him again, and they've robbed him repeatedly, thinking that each time he's going to have money, but after the third, fourth, fifth time, he didn't have anything. They took everything. And it's the little people. It's just an elderly guy that can't really walk all that well and being taken advantage of and, and so we see that the law is powerless and, and that justice never goes forth so the prophet raised this up to God and was perplexed at God's seeming lack of action he, he cried out to God how long shall I cry for help 
And he's puzzled at God's delay of delivering justice. And Habakkuk was asking God just to simply do something. Can, can you do something? Like all this stuff is happening around us. And can you do something? And this is just a very current issue for us. There are city commissions to address violence in, in most major cities. And, and in Oakland, as you know, we, we have a pretty violent city. And as I mentioned earlier, we, we, we uh, are experiencing this. And so you're like wondering, well, what, what does the church do? How does the church get involved? And what? Well, for, for Regen, we, we host these neighborhood meetings at our church where the local neighborhood gets together. And we, we, the local beat cops are here, and they attend these meetings with the folks from the neighborhood. And, and, and they mentioned to us this huge spike in muggings and huge spike in robberies right in our immediate neighborhood just the past few months. And, and these gangs who are attacking the elderly and women and, and even people, just children, and they're walking with the stroller and, and people who are about their own business and all these escalations and assault. And, and we're trying to figure out all this stuff. And we don't know if it's right. We don't know if we're doing the right thing. And I think we need to approach God in, in prayer and, and, and be more open to about, uh, you know, what, what's right and what's wrong. I think we just need to be open about things and, and talk about things openly. And I think Habakkuk will help us address this stuff. But it's not just Oakland. You can easily see for your, yourself if you read any type of regional newspapers that it's not just our city. It's all over the place, and we hear it on the news all the time where violence and injustice are just widespread. And Just in Oakland in 2009, there were 107 homicides investigated. But, but you know, the violence is all over. And the serious crime in Oakland, you know, they were kind of tooting their horn a little bit because violent crime was down 10% in 2009. That's still 107 homicides. The city's still very violent. The city's still very dangerous. And the violence is happening today in our city. It's happening in the Bay Area. It's happening worldwide. It's all around us. And it's not really all that surprising, is it? But even though it's not surprising, I hope we don't get complacent about it, about what's happening around us. And may we not be indifferent about injustice and violence that is happening around us. And I hope that we aren't calloused with what's happening around us and that it, it actually disturbs us, it saddens us, and so that we can do something. We also host a, a support group for families that have lost their children um, through, through homicide in Oakland. And it's called Thousand Mothers to Prevent Violence. And we host this group. It's a support group for, for families that have lost children due to uh, violence and homicide. And so we host these events that they hold every so often at our community center across the street. And I can't, I can't tell you the stories I heard about people losing their children. I mean, it's beyond rated R, right? It's like the stranglings, the stabbings, the shootings, the being beaten to death, all that stuff that happens to, to people's children. And so many of those cases are, are cold cases. No more leads, no more witnesses, um, no more information to prosecute anyone. And sometimes we feel like Habakkuk said in verse 4, don't we? A lot of those parents feel this way. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And what was happening here? The prophet was concerned about the wicked people in Judah, people who were a confessing covenant nation, you know, church folk, 
if you will, who were encircled and cornering the righteous. And the wicked were coming down. They were oppressing. They were taking from the righteous. And if you need more details about this, you can look at Micah chapters 2 and 3. And some of it was just done in broad daylight, like this robbing of this, mugging of this elderly man. And others were done in covert ways, like what happened to Dave there. But it's clear that justice wasn't being done to the righteous. And there was a faithful, believing group of people that were being taken advantage of. And this is something I, I hope we're concerned about as a church. And a couple of months ago, we, we, uh, we had the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church here. Because I just want to show that it's not just us. That, that's, it's all over. There are countless stories of, of missionaries with Gospel for Asia. Or you can look at all these stories with Voice of the Martyrs who, who have been violently attacked and some of them killed. But, but rarely is there justice done in those countries. People tend to pretend nothing happened in those parts of the world. Like, oh, just let it go. And in 1995, I did some relief work, um, medical relief work with a people group called the Karin. And they're this uh, indigenous people group from Myanmar. And, and for decades, the Burmese army has, has persecuted this group who are predominantly Christians. And the Karin are sometimes, uh, they're captured uh, as, as they're farming or whatever. And they'll, they'll take them as, uh, to use them as human minesweeps. For, for that area, by the Burmese army. So if like a, a, a child is there with their mother and they're just doing their farming stuff, that they'll take that child and that mother and they'll both be used as human minesweeps. And we're talking about a woman and her child or just people doing their own business. and Injustice, violence for those who profess the name of Jesus. Just like in Habakkuk's time where people who believed in Yahweh faced injustice and violence in Judah. And in verses 2 through 4, do you notice that these are words of prayer? You notice the words, how long and, and why? And the prophet is not trying to, to spark some type of philosophical debate or discussion about evil to, to prepare for a, for a lecture or a discussion or something. Habakkuk is not asking these things in the comfort of, of an office or of a think tank. He's right in the middle of all this stuff. He was an intercessor for the suffering people of God. He was standing in the gap for the hurting people of God. And there was a, a group of righteous people who were being abused by, by those who were stronger than them. And what does this tell us about prayer? It tells us that, that prayer isn't the place um, to escape to, from, to escape from our puzzlement or our perplexity, but it's a place to run to. That we run to prayer, but it's, it's, it's a place to deal with everything that we're puzzled about with God, that we're perplexed about with God, to express all that weird stuff to God, like what in the world is happening, and, and to, to ask Him about that. And to know that prayer doesn't always lead to a greater peace. Because we sometimes think that, like, oh, I pray, it will give you peace. And sometimes it leads to greater distress. And instead of giving you this spirit of calm, it can leave you with a spirit of trouble. As the Holy Spirit's working in your heart to, to prompt you to intercede for people, to break your heart a little bit, to, to get it a little bit deeper so that, so that we can intercede for folks. And as we pour, our, pour out our hearts out to God about the problems, we also try to see God's ways or His seemingly lack of ways He's dealing with the problems. And if we're truly interceding for people, we can often find ourselves asking God, how long? Why? Let's continue on in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. 
For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. And in this section, verses 5 through 11, we see the sovereignty of God, but we also see human arrogance. God's response to Habakkuk's prayer is just pretty surprising in verses 5 through 6, isn't it? Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is kind of a weird response, isn't it? This is kind of an astounding response. You would hope that God would be like, oh, I'll take care of it. But he, he has this kind of disturbing response. And something interesting about verse 5 is the word you that is in there. In reading verse 5 in English, we, we might incorrectly interpret that as God addressing Habakkuk. But in the Hebrew, the, the you is in plural form. It's not in singular form. So the verbs here and the pronouns are all in plural form in Hebrew. So God is referring to all the people in Judah, not just Habakkuk. So God is speaking to Habakkuk as well, but he's addressing all the people of Judah. So for verse 5, we can be like the Judeans who are Southerners and say y'all for the word you. So that's verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that y'all would not believe if told. The plural form. The Judeans will not believe what is going to happen to them. And this is important to remember because when you read Acts chapter 13, when Paul quotes this text about the unbelief of Israel, you'd get a better idea of what he's talking about here. So this isn't just for Habakkuk. This is all, all Judeans. And, and you see the sovereignty of God in verse 5 as, as God says, For I am doing a work in your days. God isn't just sitting around twiddling his thumbs and, and waiting around, but he's, he's speaking of the present as well as the future. He's speaking about sometime in their lifetime. I am doing a work in your days. It's relatively not that far down the line that when, when God is going to do something, it's going to happen in your lifetime. And how, how is God going to do this? He's going to raise up the Chaldeans to bring judgment on his nation of Judah. Now, who are the Chaldeans? And during this time, the Chaldeans were equivalent to the Babylonians, and they were the early Babylonians who were responsible for, for the onslaught of Judah. But the interesting thing is that the Chaldeans at this particular time, they, they weren't what we've come to know them after the assault of Judah. Right? The Chaldeans, when God was sharing with Habakkuk uh, this stuff, they weren't the same powerful, mighty people. Habakkuk would think nothing special of them because they weren't this dominant world power yet. And the Babylonians in, in southern Mesopotamia weren't this superpower. So, so this news is kind of strange. Like, the Chaldeans? Like, who are they? So Habakkuk probably thought this was like kind of a joke or something, or what, what does this have to do with anything? And he was like, all right, uh, really, what are you going to do? And thanks for, you know, making me laugh, but, you know, that's ah, funny, God. Like, tell me. And so it, it would be like God telling us that 
you know, El Salvador is going to be a superpower, right? Like, El Salvador? You'd have to look at the map to even know where it's at, right? Like, oh, where is that? We just wouldn't fathom that. And it might be true. They, they might be. But, but it would come, kind of come out of nowhere because we would expect more like China or India or, or some other country that's, that you can see up and coming. But, but if God said El Salvador, we, we would be kind of puzzled. And it, and it would be puzzling. That's why God said in verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. See, no one back then would have thought this. No one back then could have predicted that, that this stuff would happen. That Nabopolassar's revolt against Syria would take place in 625 B.C. That the powerful city of Nineveh, the outpost of the Assyrians, would fall in 612 B.C. That Nebuchadnezzar would defeat the Egyptians at Carchemish at 605 B.C. And also in 605 B.C. that there would be these three deportations Babylon, Babylon took out on Judah. And all that happened. But no one could have predicted that. And God is not simply just giving an answer to Habakkuk's prayer by, by giving the prophet news about some minor cleanup job of Judah. God is going to completely wipe Judah out with the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. You check out what God was doing with the Chaldeans. In verse 6, you notice their conquering ways. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. In verse 8, you notice how dangerous they were. Their, their horses are swifter than leopards, are more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And this is in reference to, to their military technology that was, that was so advanced and lethal in that day. And you check out their defiance and their arrogance in verse 10. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. And then you notice the idolatry in verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. See, they trust in their own might, their own military power, which tells us that the judgment of God will fall upon them. And God is sovereign. History will run the way that God sees fit. He's going to use this arrogant, this overconfident nation as a tool of his judgment on his own people. And I don't think that's what Habakkuk had in mind when he prayed this prayer. It's like a company employee, right, that, that is concerned about what's happening at his work. So, so he, he writes to the corporate office and he tells them how, like, the, the recruiting office, the recruiting department is hiring unqualified people and that the branch management is stealing from the company and that coworkers are showing up late to work and not working and, and the equipment is outdated and, and things aren't just working. And so the, the corporate office receives a letter and they agree with the employee and then they tell the branch office that they're just closing it down. All right, everything's done. That's, that's not what the employee had in mind. The employee had in mind, like, okay, I'm going to tell you guys, and you guys are going to make some changes, right? Like, do some more training or come in and keep people accountable, all, all this stuff. They, they don't expect that you're just going to shut it down. And so you see how God gives these unexpected answers to our prayers. And sometimes when God answers, His answers are more mysterious than, than when He was silent to our prayers. And it's just weird. But you know, it's only weird because we tend to prescribe our own answers to our prayers rather than submitting the answers to a sovereign God and just kind of accepting what those answers will be. And kind of like what's happening here. 
that we, we might have these prescriptions of what we want God to do, but, but really we need to just kind of lift them up and, and let, let God be God and answer the way that He does. And we tend to think that God can only work in a few ways and bring in the guardian angels or do whatever or, or do self-defense classes and all this stuff and, and that we tend to think that we know what all those ways are to, to try to prevent violence and crime around our neighborhood. And then we wonder why He did what He did instead of what we thought He should do. But who's God? God used the Chaldeans. It's strange. And you notice that God didn't say, you know what, you're right. I'm, I'm going to raise up all, all the synagogues, all you God-believing people. I'm going to raise you up to, to make a difference here in Judah. He rose up the Chaldeans. He rose up a bitter and arrogant, a power-hungry nation to be his instrument of judgment. Bizarre. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained, ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So here we have Habakkuk's response to what God told him. Babylon will come and conquer Judah, which, which is going to cause more problems for Habakkuk. And instead of the prophet reacting with objections to God, you notice how Habakkuk enters into a realm of worship. Habakkuk shows us the worship of our God that that's, that's our hope. And it's a proper response by Habakkuk to, to keep all of our troubles in the field of worship. And sometimes we don't do this. And in verse 12, there's, a, there's an assurance, and it starts out with, Are you not from everlasting? Which is a true statement, but, but that's not, it can be misinterpreted. This is speaking about Israel's past. And some translations have from ancient times, from Israel's past. Like in Micah chapter 7, verses 14 through 15, where it refers to when God brought them out of Egypt. Or chapter 7, verse 20, when it refers to the times of Abraham and Jacob. The time of Israel's history is referenced a lot. They talk about it a lot. And it seems that Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 is referring to the past history when God looked at Israel during their times of affliction and suffering and oppression, and He delivered them out of those things. And oftentimes the deliverance of Egypt is repeatedly referenced in the Old Testament. So what the prophet is saying in verse 12 is that God is a historical God. He's a promising God. He's a hopeful God. He's saying that God is the God who delivered His people out of suffering and preserved His people that were oppressed in the past, he did that before. And that this historical God of de- deliverance gave them hope back then, and he's going to give you hope now. And it's a God who's personal. You look at how Habakkuk made God personal in verse 12. He says, My God, my Holy One. So we have this historical God, we have a, a personal God, and we have a revealing God. You look at verse 12 again. You have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He knows what God's going to do. And within that verse, we also see that God is an anchor as the prophet addresses God as our rock. And in this moment of worship, Habakkuk acknowledged God to be a historical, a personal, a revealing, and an anchoring God. And notice this other phrase in verse 12, We shall not die. Habakkuk knows that even though this, this ruthless, bitter, Nation is coming to conquer Judah. They, they still won't be wiped out and God will still preserve them. 
We shall not die. He has, he has so much assurance of, of who God is, the character of God. With all that the prophet heard about the Chaldeans, he was still assured by God that he was still going to be with them. Habakkuk said, We shall not die. All in a moment of worship. And we are to put all our troubles in the context of worship. That's the importance of Psalms chapter 73, verses 16 and 17, which is in reference to the prosperity of the wicked. The prosperity of the wicked, which, which got the psalmist down as, as they were writing this psalm and until verses 16 and 17. And it said, when I, thought, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Worship is not an escape from our problems. It's just where we have to bring them. It's a place where, where we can get insight into our problems. Yeah, we can host more meetings. Yeah, we can do more things to, to, to be more proactive. But we have to enter the sanctuary of God and understand their end. That's where we're going to gain understanding. So, you know, sitting around with a bunch of people in, in this neighborhood meetings and stuff, it's all good and all it is. And it can be helpful at times. But when we come humbly before the Lord in worship and in praise, we come before the Lord that we don't understand, but we know He's God. And we can just leave it there. It's okay. We don't know. He's still God. We won't die. But He's, he's, he's God. And, and when we come bowed down before the Lord in adoration and humility, we, we can start to begin to understand. And I think that's what people who, who don't have the Lord just don't ever have or, or will have until they come to the knowledge of God. They, they don't have the sanctuary of God to enter into and then understand. And that's where we as a church, as a beacon of light to this community, that's to provide that sanctuary of God so that people do understand. And sometimes it's difficult to practice adoration in our prayers. Because we, we oftentimes come with this list of things that we want to petition before God. And I'm, I'm not in any way against petitioning before God. Because you go into Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, and it says, Let your request be made known to God. But sometimes we're so caught up with our petitioning that it's more of a checklist of things, but then it's absent of worship. It's absent of adoration. It's just things to throw out to God that we want to pray about and things to change. And our prayers at times, it can just turn so routine and and. And, and just more of a technique about keeping our life peace, peaceful or relieving our stresses and, and using God for our own purposes. And sometimes we pray without adoration, without worship and entering into that sanctuary so He can grant us understanding. And, and we don't have hearts of worship behind our prayers like Habakkuk did in verse 12. And he's acknowledging, Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, rock, my rock. And Habakkuk's hope is we shall not die. The bitter, angry, conquering people or not, God's will is, is going to be preserved. And, and knowing that God is a personal God from verse 12, we can take this statement in verse 12 personally as well. Because for us disciples in Jesus, we know our Savior, He's in the resurrection business. And what hope we have, uh, not just corporately as Christians, but also as individuals in Jesus. In Luke chapter 21, verses 16 through 18, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. How is that possible? 
Right? Some will be put to death, but not a hair of a hair on your head will be lost. That, that, that's just crazy talk. What are you talking about? It's because the Lord is in the resurrection business. And, and if we are His, then, then nothing will be lost. We're, we shall not die. Maybe physically. I mean, I'm glad Dave didn't do like some ninja stuff out there. But not physically. I mean, not spiritually. We might die physically. Verse 13. You, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Are these guys just going to keep on doing this forever in our neighborhood, in our community? We see that Habakkuk had a problem with God's Chaldean solution, so he returns to it in this section. He's just not totally content with it. And the prophet saw some flaws in God's plans because, you know, the Chaldeans, they're, they're barbaric people. They're, they're perverse people. And you look at verses 14 and 15 as those verses talk about the inhumane ways the Babylonians were and how they treated people. They treated human, humans like fish of the sea. They just, they just caught them for their own pleasure. And in verse 16, the prophet brought up how godless the Babylonians are. And in verse 17, we're told how ruthless and merciless they are. Habakkuk was asking if the Babylonians are just going to keep doing this, nation to nation, killing and killing. And so, so here we have some of Habakkuk's problems. But the biggest problem he has is in verse 13. The prophet saw that this was just so inappropriate and so wrong of God. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk recognized that Judah was not a godly nation. He knows that. He knows that his own country was not godly. But, but, but they're not like pagans like the Babylonians are. The Babylonians, they're hardcore pagans. And Judah at least had some righteous people. And in relative terms, Judah is more righteous. So how, how can the less righteous be used against Judah? Yes, Judah is pretty bad, deserves judgment. But how can, how can they be judged by pagans and, and those who are seemingly more wicked than them? Is that right? Is that really justice? Isn't that against the character of God? And so, there was no answer to this point, and And, and that kind of scary, isn't it? Because, I mean, we, we can think about this in our own community and wonder why, but let's take a bigger context and just look at America. So some in America think that, you know, uh, God will never come in judgment against us because we're a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and that our founding fathers were Christians and that even though the U.S. is wicked and deserves judgment, we're not as secular as, as those out there. And we're not as ruthless as those out there. And we might be wicked, but we have millions of Christians in America and, we're, and we support millions of others throughout the world in missions and church work with our finances. Who, who would support world Christians without us? And so we can get a bit arrogant that way. 
It's the same thing for our city when we think that, you know, we, we can provide all this stuff or, or that we have all the solutions or that, that we can't possibly be judged against because, you know, we're the Christians and we're supposed to make the differences. But what we see here is that, that God is not opposed to using something or someone supposedly more wicked to bring about judgment upon what we think is less wicked. If God chooses to judge us or judge our nation or judge whatever, and we are no longer what we once were, God is still the same holy, sovereign God. God doesn't need us. He chooses to use us, but He doesn't need us. He'll do just fine without us. He'll do just fine in serving Oakland without us. And He might be bringing judgment to us. right? And it's scary that He may use a seemingly more wicked thing to judge us. And maybe it won't be another nation like the Chaldeans, as he told Habakkuk in verse 6. Maybe he'll, he'll raise economic disaster. Maybe he'll raise another religion. Maybe, maybe he'll raise crime in a neighborhood. Who knows? And I'm not acting as a prophet here. I'm not saying any of that is what's happening. I'm just saying God is God. And He can do as He wills. And here we have God being God. Our, our sovereign God has shown that He used the Babylonians in human history. And so may, may our, our nationalism or our patriotism or our politics or, or our different ideologies about how things should be uh, about anything, may those things not become idolatry and idolatrous to us. Chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what He will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk is open to being wrong. Habakkuk is saying that he will wait for God's answer. He doesn't know how God will correct him for what he said, but he's going to wait for God's answer. We wait for the Lord to speak to us. And sometimes we're all gung-ho about what we're going to do. You know, oh, Dave got mugged. We better put more lights out there, more cameras and more all this stuff and, and have this way of communicating so that we don't have, have, have this happen again. We wait for the Lord to speak to us. And even though we don't hear anything, He has given us enough to walk in faithfulness. We have the Word of God. We have prayer. We have enough to walk by faith and not in fear. And God has given us enough to respond as Habakkuk did in verse 12. And based on Habakkuk, we should be able to to rest in assurance even though we're in the center of this violent and dangerous place. And regardless of the surroundings, regardless of the circumstances, that may we enter into the sanctuary and gain understanding and, and say, O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, a personal God who has these promises that, that we, we shall not die. He's our rock. He's our anchor. Let's pray. God, you allow certain things to happen to us and, uh, for various reasons. And even though these things are are getting closer to home, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us through them, that uh, we would be able to look at people um, as people, not as an us versus they or or those people or or those those people that are causing the violence or the crime or doing the crime, but but that we would identify that um, we are all in need of a Savior. And that we all need the love of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that as we sit and wait, that as we enter into your sanctuary and worship, that you would give us understanding that is beyond just reactionary. 
that you would help us to embrace even those who offend us and help us to see how you would love them. In Jesus' name, amen.